0: Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Toldot, that's history. The address is Breshit, Genesis, chapter 25, verse 19, through chapter 28, verse 9. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben-Lyman. This particular written commentary was updated on November 26th of 2005. All quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible, translation by David H. Stern Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bachar Banu MeKol HaAmim Venatan Lanu Torah Toh Baruch Atah Adonai Lutein HaTorah Amen Blessed are you O Lord our God King of the Universe You've selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Ele toldot. Here's the history of, or here are the generations of. That's how the Hebrew starts for this particular parasha. Ele toldot. Toldot is a word uh, that connotes um, progeny or offspring. And when we're talking about. Um, time, we usually say history, that is to say the history of people, the generations of families and of course, these opening few words dot the beginnings of just a handful of significant chapters in the Torah Um, to be sure there are ten significant instances in the book of Breshit alone that use the word toldot, which stems from the root word used for birth or offspring, the Hebrew word toldot We read about the history of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 2-4, the history of Adam in chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 9, and in chapter 10, verse 1, it talks about the history of Noah. so the history, the generations of, the offsprings of, of families and people. Up to this point, the selection might appear rather random, that is to say, without pursuing a single family lineage, but as we're going to see, God begins to narrow things now as we're focusing on Abraham and his offspring. In fact, after Noah, the Torah specifically begins to narrow down its selection of historical perspectives, singling out the significant person that is most pertinent for the reader's study. So we go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and uh, and then his 12 sons, and then eventually we start singling out some of the sons as well. So, I've made a note in my commentary here that after Noach's listing in Bereshit ten one, the Torah begins the pattern of tracing the lineage of a specific family history, highlighting the offspring of a specific man in particular. Let's notice the pattern, okay? We've got Shem's history is the highlight of Bereshit eleven ten. Shem of course was one of the sons of Noach, Shem, Ham and Yafet. And then we have Tarach's history. And Tarach is Avram's father, and we find his story in 1127 of Genesis. And then we have Yishmael's history, Avram's first son of chapter 25 and verse 12. And then we have Yitzchak's history, uh, Isaac. Yitzchak is, of course, the covenant son. Uh, Yishmael was the first son, but Yitzchak is the covenant son, and he's the um, also the son according to promise. And his story begins in chapter 25, verse 19, which is, of course, the beginning of our current parasha entitled Tolot. So that's, we're really poised to start talking about um, Yitzchak. Later on, we'll pick up the familiar pattern again with Esav, which is Yitzchak's first son and his offspring in chapter 36, verse 1 and 9. And then finally, we'll read about the history of Yaakov, who goes on to become the inheritor of the covenantal promises in Bereishit chapter thirty-seven, verse two? So, what we're seeing here, I want you, the student, um, drink of water there. Uh, I want you, the student, to notice that the Torah is masterfully guiding us into the place where we'll begin to have the understanding that Hashem wants us to have. As interesting as it might be to try and figure out all the other side stories and the back stories and and the details that aren't given to us, um, God is directing the show. And in His direction, He takes us to the places where we need to go, and the stories that have been preserved for us by Moshe, of course, are the stories that Hashem wanted us to uh, take into our own very lives, and to learn from, and to gain insight from. This understanding is comprised of what I call the majors of the majors of Torah, and the minors of the minors of the Torah. I mean, you can... That's a reference to my previous commentary, the Parashat Lech Lecha, uh, the third paragraph for reference. I know it's it's uh, in fact been um, tradition, in the, in the, at least in the Jewish community, to fill in the backstory with the Midrash and with the Agadah and with the the various legends and stories and such. But really, if you think about it, the Word of God gives us just enough information so that we can become the covenant people that we are called to be. And so there's no excuse for us not to have um, the information there. So, In my commentary, since the topic here is history, I want to take this opportunity to briefly recap the highlights of the Torah narrative up to this point, because I believe that tra- taking a look back at where we've gone will um, help prepare us as to where we're going, and that. I'm going to make mention of that more later on in my commentary, but that's why I'm using this historical overview, so to say. I've decided to stop at this fifth um, or rather at this uh, point in my uh, uh, studies to, uh, to t- stop and get an overview. And this is helpful for those people who may be just joining us. Um, you just may be now tuning into the podcast or you've just subscribed to the commentaries and you haven't really had a chance to go back and study um, all the commentaries in Breshit up to this point might be helpful just to get a snapshot of the book so far. So enjoy this opportunity. Moreover, since the Torah is comprised of the first five books of Moshe, uh, this is an opportune moment to refresh the reader's understanding of the first five parashot of the book of Breshit. So um, what I'm going to do is use small quotes from my previous commentaries as a guidance tool, bringing the readers up to the current portion Of Toldot. Okay, you ready? Here we go. In the first paragraph on page 2, this is an overview of Parashat Breshit, which covered chapters 1, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 8. Here's the overview. Quote from my uh, uh, previous commentary Beginning with Hashem changes our viewpoint from that of scientific observation to one of absolute faith grounded in the Word of God. In fact, I went on to mention that a scientist who refuses to objectively deal with a supernatural creation is in fact a scientist who refuses to deal with a supernatural God. You ever notice that uh, correlation? The modern scientists and and those who study uh, in the scientific fields today who refuse to recognize that God is the creator of all are those who are really deep down inside refusing to recognize Um, I'm sorry, those who refuse to recognize a supernatural creation are really those same uh, scientists who are refusing to recognize a supernatural God. And it's because, in my next paragraph I state, because by removing God from the equation, mankind effectively dulls his own conscience toward the responsibility of his own actions, good or bad. That is to say, if there's no God, then ultimately there's no need to answer to anyone but myself. And in that way the Torah teaches that mankind ultimately destroys himself and the Torah goes on to call him a fool you know that, that uh, familiar verse the fool hath said in his heart there is no God that's a shame my commentary goes on to note that the mercy of the Holy One offers us an authoritative historical and there's my keyword I'm going to use keywords throughout these, um, these uh, references historical is my keyword there a uh, the Holy One offers us an historical beginning complete with purpose and structure for our lives. When God begins something, its destined purpose, that is to say its history, there's my marker again. It's history is made sure. End quote from Parashat Brashit. Okay, the next overview or the next um snapshot was taken from Parashat Noach, which is the next portion in sequence. It covers Genesis chapter six, verse nine through chapter 11, verse 32. Here's the quote. Again, as you're listening to the um, podcast here, listen for the marker or the uh, correlation between all of the rest. My theme here is history. The Torah portion for today is called Tuldot, which means history or generations or offspring. So listen for words related to that offspring, history, lineage, things like that, okay? That's the... um, uh, 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 the literary marker between all of these references. Here is my quote from Parashat Noach: quote, "The condition that mankind found himself in during those days just prior to the world deluge is very similar, in my opinion, to that of mankind in our current time period." It doesn't take a genius to figure out that, as you read through the pages of um, of Noah and him building the ark, that mankind was just marrying, giving into marriage, just going about his merry way, not really knowing or even caring that the end of the world was that close and yet here's Noah faithfully building an ark according to the command of the wor- uh the word of the Lord and the command to do so and really his building of the ark if we uh, this isn't in the written commentary there's just in the uh this is just my own comment the, written, the the building of the ark really was an act of mercy on God's part he was saying look i'm not asking you all to build the ark i'm just asking you to get into the ark i'm making opportunity for you to save your very lives from the destruction that's going to befall all mankind. And yet no one listened. We know as we read through the story that it was just Noah, his wife, his three sons and their three wives, and of course the animals that Noach saved. So going back to the written commentary, knowing that history, there's our marker again, there's our link, knowing that history can be our best teacher sometimes, do you, the listeners today, do you suppose that we should have learned our lesson the first time? I think we should have. And yet... I know that we're not going to mankind, as the Torah predicts this time in, say, the Apostolic Scriptures. I'm thinking specifically in Matthew chapter 24, when the Olivet Discourse is given by our Master Yeshua, and he says that so shall it be, in the days of of the second coming of his of, of himself, as it was in the days of Noah. And that is to say, men just marrying and giving in marriage and going about their merry business, not realizing that this time again the destruction of mankind is very near. Except by comparison, God won't destroy the world by water. He's promised never to do that again. Rather, this time, the world will be destroyed by fire. Going back to my commentary, I believe we should have learned a lesson. However, since we did not, the Torah has decidedly promised that in the days of the second coming of the Messiah, that mankind would once again find himself in a state of such depravity that Hashem will have no choice but to render judgment again. And that again is a merciful God. So that's the end quote from Parashat Noach. Let's move on to an overview of Parashat Lechachah. And that covered Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 through chapter 17 verse 27. Here's the quote. Because of the example that the Torah records Avram to have been, any man willing to do so is eligible to become an heir of this great father. Let me just pause and add... Abraham's family was always open for those who were willing to place their trust in the same invisible God that Abraham trusted in as well, and the paradigm is set by the foreigners who are grafted into Abraham's family down through the uh, pages of the Torah. The sojourners who found their way into Israel and joined Israel's God. This, these are the forerunners to the Gentiles that we find in the Book of Acts joining the 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 kehilat the community the kahal the the ecclesia, the the church, for lack of a better uh, explanation. These Gentiles that became part of the community, um, they are foreshadowed in the foreigners who joined Abraham's family um, earlier on. And so we see, going back to my written commentary, because of Avram's trusting faithfulness uh, to Hashem's command, he subsequently became the father of the many righteous followers, both Jew and Gentile, I might add, that would come after him. And we know from reading the Apostle Paul that this is exactly what happened. Abraham becomes the exemplar. He becomes the model of what a Jew and or a Gentile should look like in God's economy. Trusting faithfulness in the word of Hashem. And last, but certainly not least, my commentary goes on to state, because of Avram's trusting faithfulness, a single righteous man was born into his lineage. There's our link, our lineage there, our, our, our uh, uh, buzzword to this commentary to told out. Uh, a single righteous man was born into Avram's lineage. From this single righteous man, of course we're talking about Yeshua, came the power to join the physical and or spiritual family of the Creator of all men. Because of Abraham's example to us, and because of bringing Yeshua into the world through his loins, remember God promised Abraham that he would give him a son, and the shadow of that promised son is Isaac. But the type, the fulfillment, the fullness, is Yeshua himself. He is the ultimate son of Abraham, and quite... uh, uh, Honestly, he's the ultimate son of promise. And it's because of Abraham's faith in the word of the Lord that Abraham brought forth Yeshua, so to say, because he trusted in God to bring about the promise through incredible, really unbelievable odds. And now because of Yeshua, we are blessed like faithful Abraham and we are brought into the family. So that's the end of the quote from Parashat Lech Let's move on to the overview of Parashat Vayera. And this covered Genesis chapter eighteen, verse one, through chapter twenty-two, verse twenty-four. A quote from my commentary: What makes Abraham such a great role model of faith is that not only did he trust in the word of Hashem, that alone, that in and alone is 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 a great example to follow, but also because of Abraham's faithfulness, God Himself saw into his future and predicted that his. Offspring, there's our buzzword, offspring, linking us to the, the, the parashat told out, his offspring will also be taught how to trust in the Almighty. God looked into Abraham's future and saw that Abraham was going to teach his members, his family members after him, his children after him, to walk in the ways of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That's Genesis chapter 18 there. So the lesson for us, as I continue in my commentary here, is that we must, like faithful Abraham, we Jews and Gentiles, we must trust in the Lord against all unbelievable odds to perform in our lives the promise that he has given us through Yeshua, our Messiah. Multiple promises given to us, I don't even have to name them. And yet we must exercise the same kind of trust that Abraham did and what kind of trust was that it's an active trust and that's why I use the phrase trusting faithfulness because I'm trying to emphasize both the the, the hearts grabbing a hold and the mind locking on to that which God has said but at the same time God expects of us faithfulness that is to say walking it out and that's where the Torah comes in and helps us out Okay, that's the end of the quote from Parashat Vayera. Let's look at an overview of last week's portion, which was Chayesara. And that covered Genesis chapter 23, verse 1, through chapter 25, verse 18. Quote, with the coming of Yeshua, the ultimate son of promise, non-Jews, that is to say Gentiles, could finally share completely in the spiritual as well as the physical blessings promised to our father Abraham. And what I mean to say is that um, we always had the forerunners. We had the proselytes, or really I shouldn't call them proselytes. That's, that's what the rabbis call them as they read the, of the sojourner who made his way into Israel, ancient Israel. Israel, excuse me. But really, what I'm referring to is the one who, from the nations, who was not native born, he was not Ezrach, and he found his way into Israel and into ancient Israel, and he joined himself to Israel's God, became part of the people of Israel, but he did not become a Jew. He was a stranger, using the Hebrew word ger there. And so, we had the forerunner for that in the strangers who joined themselves to the Lord, Ruth is one, uh, Rahab was one. Uh, these people who were not um, recognized with as having a traceable um, lineage to Jacob, yet joining the people of Israel and becoming um, partakers in the covenants of Israel, that is to say, walking out the Torah. These people were the forerunners to the Gentile explosion. ...in the book of Acts. And so that's what I mean by with the coming of Yeshua. It wasn't until after Yeshua came and sent His Spirit... ...and the um, messages going to Paul and to Peter and such... ...that the Gentiles en masse, the key word is en masse... ...were able to join the people of Israel. Going back to my commentary, only after this time came could the mystery... The reference to mystery comes from Ephesians 3, verse 4 through verse 10. This mystery allowing the uncircumcised to be called righteous. And the reference there is to Romans chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. This mystery had to be revealed after Yeshua sent his spirit, and after the spirit's work became more expansive than he had been in the time period of the Tanakh. But, at this current time in our parasha of historical making, there's my key word, historical, at this time of historical making, according to Hashem, while Gentiles were allowed into the covenant, God saw fit not to explicitly reveal how this mystery would unfold. So when I say this current time of historical making, I'm going back to parashat Chayi Sarah. In the time period that we're reading of Genesis right now, it's still a mystery. God is not revealing it completely to Am Yisrael, to the people of Israel, exactly how the Gentiles are going to become fellow heirs and fellow covenant members with Israel. It's still a hidden thing, yet you know it's trickling in little by little according to uh, God's workings and God's plans. So that's our quote from Chaye Sarah. I go on to say in my commentary that when I talk about the Gentiles and I'm I'm making reference to the physical offspring of Israel as well as the spiritual offspring. Some people take offense because I seem to ignore the Gentiles, and and yet I'm not purposely neglecting the Gentiles of today. That is to say the ones who are offspring, there's a link to uh, Toldot. Offspring is Toldot. The ones who are offspring according to faith. Because, in fact, the Torah does have Gentiles in mind when it speaks of covenants. I don't think that the Gentiles were a side note. I really don't. If you Follow my commentaries closely, and I believe a, a very careful reading of the text will reveal that the Gentiles were always within God's plan. It's right there in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I'll bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you, and through you all the nations, the Hebrew word is goyim, the plural of the singular goy, and that's where we get the word Gentile of sorts. It means non-native uh, born. Um, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Gentiles were not a second Plan or a plan B, a side note, a side thought in God's plans. I believe they were right there up front. They just came at a later date than the native born. So, in fact, I make a quote from Tim Haig, who asserts that the reason that Jewish lineage—there's another word link again—lineage, the reason that Jewish lineage is important to God is that it's important. I should say is is that God has promised to manifest His omnipotent sovereignty. Through the people descended, there's another word key there, descended, uh, related to out. Through the people descended from Jacob. And so, God makes a promise to Abraham. And it's a promise that needs to be understood first and foremost in the natural. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And I'm going to give you um, seed after you. I'm going to multiply your seed. We could call it a promise of multiplicity. How was Abraham to understand the promise? and the words that God was saying to him, I believe first and foremost he's to understand his promise of multiplicity to be natural children. Now we know from reading Paul that this blessing extends to the physical as well as the spiritual children. That is to say Jews and Gentiles. But first and foremost it had to make sense in the natural. And so that's what I mean That's the point I'm trying to make when I say that God wanted to manifest his omnipotent sovereignty through the people descended from Jacob, the natural line of Abraham first. But in maintaining this promise to Jacob, one need not exclude the non-descendant. That is to say, today we know the non-descendant to be named Gentile. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I think Gentiles are are just a neutral term, just like Jews are. But... um, let me go back, but in maintaining this promise to Jacob, one need not exclude the non-descendant, for God has also promised to bring the nations within the scope of that same covenant. I'm quoting from Tim Haig. Hague goes on to say, quote, God has adopted them both. God has adopted both Jew and Gentile. It is only when the Jew and the non-Jew live and worship together as equally adopted brothers in the congregation of Yeshua that God's faithfulness and power are manifested as they should be end quote and that's taken from Tim Haig, fellow heirs FFOZ publications 2002 pages 40 and 41 and i like what heg says there about that non-jew and that jew and non-jew must be recognized as equals when we when we cheapen the identity of one or the other identity, uh, one of the other people group, we do damage to the promise of the covenants that uh, God made to Abraham we should not fall for the age-old racial discrimination of Jews are better than Gentiles or conversely Gentiles are better than Jews or the Jews are chosen and the Gentiles are not or conversely the church is, is chosen and the, Gent- the Jews are rejected all of that is nonsense people get it out of your head we need to get back to the what the torah teaches as truth is that in messiah not only are both groups sinners but in messiah both groups have equal covenant responsibilities and both groups are equal uh re, re, uh, uh how should i say equal re, recipients of the um of the uh, blessings promised through messiah and so we are equal brothers i look at my gentile brothers and i say you know what you're my equals I'm not better than you. There's no second-class citizenship in God's congregation. There's no second-class citizenship in God's family. That's nonsense. If you are listening to this podcast today, and you're attending a Messianic congregation, and you're a Gentile, you have no uh, knowledgeable, traceable lineage to Jacob, as you know it. If someone were to ask you if you were a Jew, and you would just honestly say no. Yet you have placed your faith in Messiah. You are equal to... To the Jewish people in every way. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise, okay? If you have further questions about that, please write to me, Yeshua613 at hotmail.com, and we can chat about it. I I, I just... It, it just burns me up when I hear of, of Messianic congregations around the world, especially here in America, where Gentiles are being treated by the Jewish members as second-class citizens. I just the righteous indignation within me just wells up and I just want to lash out. And so, boy, Sorry, don't get me started there. We'll hear more about this later on. As in, in, uh, if, if you want a fuller treatment on this subject, um, log on to the website graftedin.com, navigate to the More Commentary section, and download my Grafted In uh, uh, commentary, my study there, or better yet, download my um, Exegeting Galatians to get a fuller treatment of that. Okay, Let's go back to my commentary. I am, however, laying the groundwork necessary for the Gentile believers to understand the foundations of the Christian faith. The Christian church sprang from Judaism. Judaism is its mother. And in my opinion, it should have never left, left that house, but it's unfortunate that it did, and so we have to go back and retrace our, our historical beginnings if we want to really know who we are. By addressing first the natural, we will be better equipped to understand the spiritual. And that's what I've said in several places, and I'm going to maintain that that maxim. So, as you can see from a cursory glance of the highlighted words in the written commentary, I'll just go back and name them for you. Descended, lineage, offspring, historical, offspring, lineage, history, history, historical, and toldot. All of these have a common um, meaning, and that is offspring or toldot, the, the Hebrew word there. And I did that in a sort of a word play, but as you can see from a glance at these highlighted words, the Torah has quite a bit to teach us about history and offspring. To be sure, it has been aptly noted that, quote, a person that knows not from whence he came will be ill-equipped to properly deal with where he is going to, end quote. It's kind of a nice little maxim, don't you think? Our current portion gives us the beginnings of the fast-paced story of two brothers. Now the Torah is going to pick up pace here, and it gets really, really interesting, so I really, really encourage you to read the portions along with my commentaries, because then you'll really get the, uh, uh, the full meat of what Hashem is trying to explain to us. We have two brothers here. We have Esav, whose name in English is Esau, but he also goes by the name Edom. And we have Yaakov, which his English name is Jacob. And what we read about is their ongoing struggle to become the men that they feel they deserve to be. There's a little bit of um, sibling rivalry going on, especially early on when Jacob and Esau um, meet over that pot of stew that we're going to read about later on in the Torah portion. It's an interesting tale, complete with deception and disappointment, um, and then we get the women uh, getting into the uh, story there. we got Rivka, which is uh, Yitzhak's wife. She gives birth to these twins who grow to become individuals with quite opposite character traits. It would really make for a nice mini-series if some uh, Hollywood producer would like to pick up on this story, in my opinion. Um, the elder brother, Esav, is a skilled hunter. He's a rough, hairy man, and he has a flair for cooking tasty game. He winds up being favored by his father, um, Yitzchak. On the other hand, and by comparison, the younger is Yaakov. And he's described in the Torah as tender-hearted, a dweller of tents. Um, He's smooth-skinned, as opposed to his brother being hairy. And Jacob is described as being quiet. And he becomes the favorite of the mother. And so, uh, you parents out there, you know, you can't help it sometimes. You've got your favorite children among the um, group that God has given to you, and yet in another way, sometimes we parents do damage to our children by singling out favorites because we just fuel this sibling rivalry. So I'm not sure what lesson is there. Uh, you may want to read it and take away from it what you can. As I read through the story of the Esau um, and, and and Yaakov um, scenarios and such, uh, some of you are familiar with Tom Clancy. He's you know he wrote lots of uh, good action novels and yet you know what he can't hold a candle to God's action novel here in fact i compare in my commentary like a good tom clancy novel no respect to tom clancy by the way if he ever logs on and hears this podcast mr clancy i have no disrespect to you i think your books are great but um god god got beat you to the punch god's got the best action novel out there and it's and it's the one book we're reading right now the book of uh the book of the bible but like a good tom clancy novel the torah narrative baits the reader's curiosity by informing us that these two individuals um, that from these two individuals I might add two nations of people will spring forth we read about that in Genesis 25 verse 22 and 23 isn't that interesting that from two men the Torah promises that two whole nations of peoples will come forth. let me pause and take a drink here That water tastes good. Let me finish uh keep going in my commentary here. Moreover, the Torah also informs us that the rivalry that started at birth and continuing through the majority of their lives will eventually culminate in one of these nations of peoples eventually serving the other. Wow, the, the, the you know as um as Alice would say in Alice in Wonderland, curiouser and curiouser. These uh, two people groups that the Torah is referring to, is the, the details are like this. Asav would serve Yaakov. Asav becomes a nation of peoples, and the Torah promises that he would end up serving Yaakov. And, and yet, you know, sometimes God gives us more than we anticipate. I have to stop and ask myself out loud, wonder out loud. Why does Hashem want us to know these intricate details of history? Why does he want us to know? Why do we care? Let's find out. What about the physical offspring of Abraham is so pertinent to us 21st century believers? Why does it matter to us today, is what I'm trying to say. In an effort to get an answer, let's turn to the B'chadashah, the Apostolic Scriptures, a.k.a. the New Covenant, a.k.a. the New Testament. Let's turn there for our answer, okay? In what I like to call Rav Shaul, who was Apostle Paul, and what I like to call his masterpiece of Jewish-Christian theological discussion, and my own personal favorite book of the entire torah um the book of romans also talks about the birth of these two individuals and their subsequent relevance in the history of hashem in fact david stern author of the complete jewish bible from which i make my quotes and uh, he also authored the new the jewish new testament commentary he has this to say about romans chapter 9 verse 10 through 13. Let me make a quote from his commentary. Here we go. The case of Rivka is even more to the point in demonstrating God's absolute sovereignty in determining such matters independently of anything human beings do. For both Yaakov and Esav were her children, whereas the fact that Yishmael's mother was Hagar and Yitzchak's was Sarah might lead one to conclude that Sarah's greater worthiness had Earned Yitzhak the promises. Nor can one look for a difference in deservedness on the father's side, for both were conceived in a single act by End quote. And that is taken from David Stern, Jewish New Testament Commentary, the Jewish New Testament Publications, Incorporated, 1996, and the page was 390, and he made the emphases there in the bold. Let's go back to my commentary. What, can, uh, what we can glean from this, from David Stern's uh, comment there, is that not only is Hashem actively involved in, a hist- in historical development, that is, say, general history, God has his hand in general history, but really what we're trying to see is that God is ultimately orchestrating and directing all of history towards the divinely expected ending. God's not just randomly watching history go by, and hoping that it will turn out for the best. What I believe is happening is that God is orchestrating the historical events, particularly for the covenant members that he's called out, so that history lines up with God's purposes, and that nothing escapes God's will. It is in this way, you could say, that a man's destiny becomes fixed. God makes the rules, and that's why he's God. Notice that in our current parasha, at the request of Rivka, that... Hashem disclosed some rather important de uh some important key details surrounding the destinies of her soon to be born twins. If you go back and read in chapter twenty five, verse twenty two and twenty three, um um Rebecca asks God, you know, she feels the the turmoil within her womb, the two children warring, as it were, with one another even before they're born. And she asks God, why is this the way? It is. And God gives her an answer and tells her about that, the fact that two were going to become nations and that one will serve the other and things like that. So she, this lets us know up front that, I mean, if you have a problem with predestination, I'm sorry. Our God makes sure that things happen the way that he plans them. And whether you call it predestination or whether you call it God's foreknowledge, it works out to be the same result. The end result is the same. Nothing happens without God knowing it. This speaks to us about the sovereignty of our all-knowing God and his desire to bless all of mankind through chosen, obedient individuals. God ordains the steps of the righteous man, and we read that in the book of Psalms, I believe. I think it's Psalms, it might be uh, Proverbs I'm quoting. At any rate, God chooses righteousness Righteous individuals through every generation. The Torah demonstrates this. And as God works through the righteous of each generation, the rest of mankind is is put on a collision course with God's will and brought into an opportunity, I might add, to join the family of God. And sadly, we know that not all men respond to God's offer. Ultimately, the righteous man known as Yeshua stepped into the pages of history and offered mankind how should we say, salvation in its utmost. And yet, we know that not all men will accept Yeshua. So, unfortunately, because of our fallen condition, we men, uh, mankind as, as a whole, because of this condition that we're in, we usually render ourselves ineligible to receive Hashem's blessings. What is that ineligibility? It's due to our lack of faith. We simply lack Faith in God. We know that the book of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. We have to believe that God is, and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. And so, the solution facing mankind is to believe that God is God, and that He rewards those who seek Him. And His ultimate reward is salvation in His Son, Messiah, Yeshua. But this lack of faith doesn't render the plans and blessings of Hashim powerless god is not god's hands aren't tied by man's faithlessness put that thought far from your head i i heard one one uh, philosopher teach this once at a um, I went to a um, a meeting when i was in korea and it was um it was kind of a pseudo religious meeting it was a, a religious uh, it was a meeting on how to make well, it was a meeting on how to be prosperous, and they used, they were using biblical principles, and they didn't bill it as a as a Christian meeting or a religious meeting. But when I when, you know after short, shortly listening to what the uh, teachers had to say, I figured out that's what they're talking about. But he talked about how that um, because man lacks faith in God's principles, God can't operate, and he talked about how that God's hands are tied somehow until we, by faith, step into. Um, into these, these biblical uh, principles. And he was talking about trying to make money. And he was saying that if we don't have faith in these principles, then God God's hands are tied of sorts. And I don't believe that's true. What ends up really happening is that God is not thwarted by the likeness of man's uh, wickedness and and man's um, ultimate lack of faith. And the proof is in the Torah itself. Even though Israel demonstrated over and over, historical Israel, demonstrated faithlessness in God, his plans weren't thwarted. The Messiah came to uh, into historical reality, uh, the promised son given to Abraham the, the you know the, the son of promise, well, came to pass, and, and Yeshua was born and and all of that, despite the fact that Israel over and over again went headlong into idolatry, so if anything, the Torah proves us that god 's sovereignty is greater than man's wickedness and man's Uh, A lack of faith. So concerning the corporate unbelief of the Jewish people, what does the Torah say? Let me make a quote from Romans 3. And Paul's making the same point that I just made. Quote, what if some did not have faith? And he's asking rhetorically, you know, speaking of Israel, what if some in Israel didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Paul knows the answer to his own question. And he answers, not at all. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. As it is written, and Paul quotes the Tanakh to prove that his very point is true. He doesn't want you to just believe him because he thinks so. He wants you to believe him because God's word says so. Here's the quote that Paul uses. Quote, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. End quote. And the, um, the whole quote is taken from Romans chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 out of the New International Version. So... Let's go on. It is, in fact, the desire of Hashem that we should indeed inherit the blessings intended for us. It really is. God's not willing that any of us should perish. And I might add, God's not willing that any of us should lead diminished lives. Yeshua said, I came that ye might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. God goes on to tell Avraham of the future inheritance and blessing of his offspring in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1-8. through 8. Yitzchak of the future inheritance and blessing of his offspring in Genesis chapter 23. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 26, verse 3 through 5. And later in our next par- parasha coming up, we will once again read about Hashem reminding the young man Yaakov about the future inheritance and blessings of his offspring. So you see, in every instance of the avot, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God tells them of the future inheritance and blessing of the children coming after them. God doesn't have to do that. But in his mercy and his love, he tells us anyway. And we have to ask sometimes, why does Hashem remind us about the inheritance and the blessings that are ours? I said it's in his mercy and his love, but I think there's probably a little more to it than that. I might imagine that it's because God himself doesn't want us to forget about them. We're the humans, we're the ones who are weak and frail, and we're the ones who have to, to be reminded over and over again of God's faithfulness. More than that, it is a reminder to us of his limitless, unbridled love and concern for us, even though we don't deserve these things. So it's both his love for us and a reminder to ourselves. But along with these promises, he wants us also, also to be reminded, I believe, that it is his authority and grace alone that makes our glorious uh, history a reality. It's not what we do. We don't chart our own courses. God orders our steps. And God makes sure that the promises are going to come to pass. To be sure, Jacob and his mother Rivka got themselves into a real mess trying to secure what they both thought they knew belonged to them. You know, God Told Rebecca that her son uh, Isaac, I'm sorry, that her son Jacob would be a covenant man; that he would be the one that the elder would serve, the older would serve the younger. So Rebecca knew this, and so she 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 of course favored Jacob. Um, you remember um, uh, the father favored the older son, and the mother favored the younger son. And so the mother the mother and the younger son got together, and in kind of cahoots, they tried to bring about. The promises under their own strength. They um, devised the plan where Jacob and Esau would get together. I'm sorry, where Jacob would go in and um, deceive Papa Isaac by, you know, Jacob put on the um, coat of hair and deceived Papa Isaac into thinking that he was Esau, and so that he could get the, the covenant blessing from him. And yet we know, you know, you have to think in hindsight or look back and, and speculate. How would it have worked itself if they had would not have planned that we know that Jacob was going to be the recipient of the covenant blessing God had already promised this to Rebekah, and yet they got themselves into trouble. My point is that because they took matters into their own hands, God eventually works through their uh, scheming and as we read further into um our story on Toldot, we learn that the deception and the deceit of both Jacob and Re- of Rebecca. Uh, as they plot to not only take the birthright of Esau, in chapter 25, verse 29 through 233, 20 we also read that eventually the coveted um, verbal blessing from Isaac is pronounced upon the firstborn. And so um, they scheme and they get what they go after, and yet really we know that it's God had planned uh, for. Um, Jacob to be the recipient of this blessing. And that's in chapter 27 where we read about their scheming. Now you might single out the fact that Yaakov stole or or supplanted it uh, as one translation of the name Yaakov suggests. He stole the birthright blessing from his brother Esau. Yet, and I'm trying to make this point here very carefully, yet we also know that Hashem had already promised to his mother earlier that the, quote, elder would serve the younger. So, in a way, you could also conclude that Yaakov, that Jacob, was just taking what already belonged, or eventually would belong to him, in the first place. It is true that the blessing was his. Yet, the lesson I believe the Torah is trying to teach us here is not to take matters into our own hands. That's the point. Just because God promises something to you doesn't mean you have the right to reach out and take it. Unless God tells you to do so. And we don't read in the Torah that God told Rebecca and Jacob, reach out and grab this. Rather, the lesson seems to be that they stepped in where God had not given them permission yet, and yet God still worked through their weakness. So the bottom line is, what Jacob did was still wrong. It was wrong, people. It was wrong of him to to go after that which was his brother's. He should have waited until God gave it to him. Rivka, as well as his mother, would pay for her foolishness by sending Yaakov off to her brother Laban. Laban is how you would read it. Her brother Laban until the heat of Esau's anger subsided. You can read about that in Genesis chapter twenty-seven, verse forty-three through forty-five. And the reason how, or the way that she would pay for it, the way, the reason I put it in that way. Is because she supposed then at a future date that her son Yaakov could return. Remember, Jacob was the beloved one for her; the younger boy was her her favorite. So she sends him off to Laban until the older brother can, you know, cool off. Because as soon as he found out that he got cheated, he was pretty hot and heavy, and he told Jacob, you know, next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. But alas, we know as we read through the story that she would never see her beloved Yaakov face-to-face face again. Why? Because she died before they met back up again. I believe that's God's way of saying to her, you shouldn't have taken matters into your own hands. Mama, even though I promised to you that the, old, the elder would serve the younger, and you, of course, in chatting with your husband, um, uh, um, Isaac, you knew that Jacob was the covenant recipient. Yet, Mom, you took things into your own hands, you took matters in your own hands, you conspired with the Son, and you upset Esau. And, and I'm speaking as if I'm God. That's not the way I was planning it. But yet, God, in his sovereignty, foresaw that that would happen, I believe, and he was able to work through that. And so we just have to speculate as to how it would have happened if they wouldn't have schemed. To be sure, um, Jacob himself would also reap the harvest of his own greed at the hands of another man who would prove to be even greeter than he was. We're going to read about Laban later on. The next few parashot will indeed prove to be intriguing, so stay with us. Don't tune me out just let, uh, just yet. Let me um, draw my parashot to a close, my commentary to a close here. I didn't name the um, chapters like I usually do. I just want to say, finally, I want to mention one last important out, one last important genealogy or history, or historical uh, narrative. Okay, um, In the first few books of the uh, Apostolic Scriptures, we have Matityahu, which is Matthew. He begins by informing the readers about a very, very prominent historical genealogy. And that, of course, is of the Messiah, Yeshua himself. Let's read. Quote, This is the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. That's verse 1 of Matthew. My point is this in reading Matthew's genealogy. okay, Having established our historical heritage traced through the loins of the family of the man from Ur-Kasdim, we must now establish and solidify our heavenly lineage by lining our history up with the history of the man from Nazareth. Let me just pause and let that sink in for a little bit. The Torah teaches us that since we have died to sin and have been buried with Him, Yeshua, symbolized in baptism, then our hope lies in the fact. That he was raised from the dead. You can reference 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter, but specifically look at verses 20 through 28. Moreover, these verses prepare us in understanding the spiritual inheritance. There's a link to our Torah portion, Toldot, inheritance. The spiritual inheritance that we have in Messiah is mentioned in Ephesians 1. Verses 3 through 14. So uh, let's look at verses 11 through 12 of Ephesians. Okay, quote, also in union with him we were given an inheritance. Again, the word inheritance is my um, literary device that I've been using throughout my commentary. Inheritance, offspring, uh, told out history. Uh, genealogy, lineage, these things. Inheritance is my key there. Also in union with him we were given an inheritance. We who were picked in advance according to the purpose of the Holy One, uh, of the one who affects everything in keeping with the decision of his will, so that we who earlier had put our hope in the Messiah would bring him praise commensurate with his glory. End quote from uh, Ephesians there. So, Looking forward by faith, we find that Yeshua's inheritance is our inheritance, he being the first fruits of those who are raised to life and righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Because genealogy is very, very important to Hashem, we should seek to better understand the history we inherited by faith from Father Avraham. I challenge you to read Romans chapter four. You who were not born Jewish not to worry. You've been grafted in, and in the ingrafting, the inheritance—I'm sorry—the inheritance and heritage of Israel becomes your inheritance and your heritage. Israel's history is your history, and that's what I mean by the importance of genealogy. I don't mean to say that you have to be born Jewish, or you, or you don't have to be. I'm not—I'm not trying to either elevate or diminish genealogy. What I'm trying to point out is that in Messiah. Genealogy becomes of importance because it means that we are linked to the man Yeshua, and we become part of his family. And that's what I mean when I say genealogy is very important to Hashem. In fact, a man by the name of Abraham J. Heschel developed a thing, a theme along these lines, the very lines I'm talking in his volume on philosophy and religion. And the book is entitled "Man Is Not Alone." He writes these. Okay, quote. This is a quote from Heschel's book. Quote, when the hurricanes of life batter us so that we bend to the point of breaking, we are not rootless. There is a firm and secure root to support us. The root that supports us, his references to Romans 11:18, and nourishes us, the references to chapter 11, verse 17, is the godly living faith of Israel. Heschel goes on to say, and I'll finish with this quote, This is our foundation, to know the God of history, Israel's history. He makes a reference to Hebrews 11. He finally goes on to say, This concept of history brings ultimate meaning and purpose to both personal and global events. We are not alone, he says. The future is secure. God is alive, at work, at work and in control. End quote. Heschel's book, uh, Man is Not Alone, was produced out of a uh, New York, Farrar, Strauss, uh, I'm sorry, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, uh, 1951, and uh, it was reprinted by New York Harper and Row in 1966. And with Heschel's quote, I conclude my commentary. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melecha Olam Asher Natan Lanu Toratimet Vechaye Olam Natabatochenu Baruch Ata Adonai Notain Ha Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song, Shema, was written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com